American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. So now I'm obsessed with time. Come on, tell me about the time. Had it all in my head tonight. Had the time of my life. When the words all come down, like blues on Tuesdays come down. Throw it all away. Throw it all away. Welcome to another episode of American Timelines. I'm Amy and that's Joe. Yes, and we are starting a new year on this episode. This is a special episode. This is episode 150. That's a milestone. Yes. This is our 150th episode. Ah, I can't believe we've done this 150 times. I know. After today, we will have. Yes, and we have a very special guest that's going to go into this new year where we've moved on from 1951. We covered all that crazy stuff. That's right. We're in 1952 now. And we have my mom here. Yes. Oh Welcome, Mary Bonford. Hey. Hello, American <laughs> Timeliners. So I am ready to spelunk into the depths of time. And it is a long time to <laughs> 1952. We're going to spelunk. Well, and we are having my mom on because her birthday was January of 1952. Boom. Just like my mom. <gasps> No, Just your mom was in January 1952. No, but we had her on her birth month. <laughs> That's right. On, An we, excuse to have our moms on. Yeah, is we what had it her is. on February oh. of 1951. Um, so everyone will know my mom is older than your mom. <laughs> <laughs> yep, now they know. Oh, now they know. Oh, <laughs> and that, I mean, we when we first met, that's how we decided whose mom could win in a fight. Is my mom's older, so I think that meant your mom would win. Who's older? been training longer, mom. though? Yeah. Yeah. I know. Yeah, Three girl. boys. It was your mom. Yeah. yeah she could kick true. my butt. Yeah, she, she had to <laughs> fight us a lot. So hopefully you guys never do fight. Yes. Let's uh, hope. Yeah. I think right, so 19... a matchup. I want to maybe wrestle. <laughs> you want to do it. Maybe, maybe a leg wrestling match or something. Thumb yeah. wrestling. Yeah. I think no 10 paces. Barred. I don't know. You, you have to distance. It's got to be the six foot thing, you know. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> thank so you for, for having me. Oh, thank you for being here. Yes, thank you I so much. Not, I know it's uh, not your favorite. I am not. I am. I'm not professional. <laughs> I leave that to my uh, daughter and son-in-law, and yes. uh, try to maintain anonymity at all costs. Oh, yes. you're gonna you're gonna fall in love with this. The bug is gonna bite you, and you're gonna have your own podcast by the oh, end of the year. Gosh, I uh, always get bited by bugs. I hate that. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see right. what happens. So 1952. Yes. Was um an important year, I guess. Because I well, was born. If, Nothing yeah, else happened. Because you were born. born. And if she Show wasn't born, over. you wouldn't be born. <laughs> and we right. wouldn't have the show. <gasps> That's true. That's a but I'm going to start the timeline. I'm going to I'm going to back us up just a second. Yeah. To December 1951, because my t- the timeline actually what happens here. What I'm going to start with actually kind of started happening in December of 1951. Okay. Two things simultaneously. The first thing in December of 1951, the North Hollywood Hospital and Sanitarium supervisor advised. His family that Jerome Lester Horowitz was becoming a problem to the nursing staff Uh-oh. at the facility Jerome? because of his mental de- deterioration. Yeah, Jerome Lester Horowitz. They admitted that they could no longer care for him and suggested that he be placed in a mental hospital. His brother mm-hmm. Moses Harry Horowitz refused and relocated him to the Baldy View Sanitarium in San Gabriel, California. Okay, Baldy okay. View. Yes. Yeah. So that's his brother. Mo- <laughs> Moses and Jerome are brothers. <laughs> Moses is older, but he had to take care of his brother. But I'm going to leave that there for now. Okay. At the same time, in late December 1951, laden with passengers and nearly 40 metric tons of cargo, the freighter oh. SS Flying Enterprise steamed westward from Europe towards America. A few <sighs> days into the voyage, she hit the eye of a ferocious storm. Force 12 winds tossed men about like playthings and turned drops of freezing Atlantic foam into icy missiles. 
Whoa. When in the space of 28 hours, the ship was slammed by two rogue waves, solid walls of water more than 60 feet high. Wow. The impacts cracked the decks and hull almost down to the waterline, threw the vessel over on her side, and thrust all on board into terror. What? Oh, my what God. What caused a wave that big? A crazy storm. Flying and Enterprises what? Captain... Kurt Carlson, hold on, I'll get it. I'll let you guys talk in a second. This is all this is all one this is all one one thing. This is an intro to a book. Fly, Flying Enterprises Captain Kurt Carlson, a seaman of rare ability and valor, mustered all hands to patch the cracks and then try to right the ship. When these efforts came to naught, he helped transfer across waves forty feet high the passengers and the entire crew to lifeboats sent from nearby ships. Then, for reasons both professional and intensely personal, and yet to the amazement of the world. Carlson defied all requests and entreaties and entreaties to abandon ship. Instead, for the next two weeks, he fought to bring Flying Enterprise and her cargo to port. His, her- his heroic endeavor became the world's biggest news at the time. So he got he he did it? In a narrative and now in a narrative as dramatic as the ocean's fury, acclaimed best-selling author Frank Delaney tells for the first time the full story of this unmatched bravery and endurance at sea in his book Simple Courage, the true story of peril on the sea. You can get it on Amazon. He wrote this on October 9th, uh, 2007. Uh, oh my but, gosh. So I found so that I had to read that intro because that's an intro to his book. So by his book I've mentioned Frank Delaney like five times on this podcast. You I kinda, have? I should reach out to him. Yeah, because he keeps writing books about stuff we're talking about. So, oh wow, um, so anyway, stuff. so so that's the start of that story. That got it. Reckon I have more. It comes later in yeah, January. Yeah, so that was what happened in December with the, the the trouble with it, and the and the captain stayed on there, and we're going to get with what happens with that later in January. Got it. And what body so of water a, was yeah. that, Joe? It was in the ocean, or it, yeah, it was it was off the coast of between Ireland and England. Oh my gosh! Uh, huh? Have you ever heard of Cork, Ireland? Yeah, it was near. It was near Cork. Wow! If you know where that is, I guess Cork is like the second largest city. Why don't you stop talking now? <laughs> yeah, bunch you know, of people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, is Dublin isn't Dublin the largest? Uh, yeah, in, uh, I'll say yeah. I don't know. I'll say yeah. Okay. So we'll leave we'll leave those two things there. They're unrelated, but I started the stories there, and I'm going to get in more to later. But for now, we're we're all the way to Wednesday, January 9th. Okay. Uh, love cliffhangers. That was good. Yeah, we'll come back to that. Um, and on January 9th, 1952, the Marines, the U.S. Marines, gave notice that they will recall Ted Williams. To active duty for the Korean War. Do you guys know who Ted Williams is? No. Uh, I baseball. Baseball? Yeah, Mary would have heard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like one of the greatest baseball players of all time. Oh. And he probably would have broken all the records if he was if he didn't serve in World War II and the Korean War. Wow. So he got called out, but he was unbelievable. And his last at-bat before they called him up, he hit a game-winning two-run homer against Detroit's Dizzy Trout to give the Red Sox a 5-3 to three win. Dizzy so Trout. Ted Williams, Dizzy Trout, yeah, isn't that cool? Name? <laughs> Ted Williams was amazing. He was a nine-time All-Star, a two-time recipient of the American League Most Valuable Player, a six-time AL batting champion, a two-time Triple Crown winner. That means you lead in home runs, RBIs, and batting average. I mean, it's he's unbelievable. Okay, uh, we believe you. Not to be mistaken for the, the Kentucky Derby and the Preakness and that Triple Crown. Yeah. Yeah, no, not that trophy. <laughs> yeah, but he so, but he so then he goes and he gets called back up, and he already fought in World War II, and now Man. he gets called up while he's dominating baseball. And most baseball players would just go into the service and just play, like they would, they would be there, but all they would do is play on the service baseball team, like for oh Royale really or something. But he was like he was a pilot and all this stuff, so they he was too valuable to do that. So, and he actually was John Glenn's wingman in Korea. John John Glenn, the astronaut. Oh wow! That, how weird is that? Really? Ted Williams and John Glenn. Yeah. Um, so he would he likely would have exceeded 600 career home runs if he hadn't served in the military, and he probably he might have even approached Babe Ruth's record uh, if he hadn't. Um, so he went to the military, and that ruined his career. Well, know? he went back and played baseball afterwards, but that's a couple years of not getting oh, right. stats, you know. So he didn't go, but. He was saving uh, us, though. I mean, he was he was saving all of us. 
But he never complained publicly about the time devoted to the service in the Marine Corps. I don't even know about though... the Korean War, though. Yeah, I'm I, not sure. The um, well, I was teaching about it, and um, it was a proxy war. Yeah, which mean which means that the the superpowers like the United States and Soviet Union, right? They were against. It was a Cold War, and they were against each other. Right. But a proxy war is when they don't fight each other directly. They fight they, through other people. Yeah, yeah, they they get involved in these third world country conflicts, and they fight that way. Well, and the word was I mean, because we've been talking about this now for two years. There are two years of the show of two two years worth of episodes, right? About how. The fear was that communism was going to spread. Right. And so you had to fight communism wherever you could. Yes. But the conspiracy theorist in me feels like it's all bullshit. Like, it's all just like, there's probably secret reasons behind closed doors. It probably has to do with racism. Deals. Well, racism, I'm sure, was something. Everything ends up having to do with it. Mary, did racism exist in 1952? (laughs) Ha! (laughs) <laughs> I don't remember a lot of that year, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, and born in January, even by December, I don't have a lot of memory of it. So, no, I wouldn't think you would. Well, right now we're talking about things that happened before you were born, but you were close. You're right. Uh, well, anyway, we don't need to get graphic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Ted the year. Williams I, biog- oh, go ahead. Oh, go, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Ted Williams. Oh. <laughs> Ted Williams, biographer. Uh, Argued that he was not happy about being pressed into service, but he uh, did what he thought was his patriotic, patriotic duty. But also, one other aside about Ted Williams: Did you know that he is cryogenically frozen? Oh my God, his Seriously? body is frozen, and his head, like I guess they decapitated him and put him in a jar in case in the future. You made that no, up? No, no, his family. He wanted to no, know his family. They all a bunch of them want to be frozen in case in the future they have a way to bring people back. I uh, heard they do that in old... California, probably right. Yeah, I Somewhere. thought it was just. Walt I didn't Disney, think but... they did that in 1952, but I guess. well, his his older daughter Walt actually Disney. sued. That's what I've always heard. Yeah, Disney's frozen, right? That's what I, I, heard. I think that's an urban what? legend. What? Well, Ted Williams really is, and his older daughter was like, <laughs> "No, no, we can't do this. He doesn't want to be frozen. He wants to be cremated and have his ashes spread in the Florida Keys." So she sued. Her two other siblings, her mm-hmm. sister and brother, because uh, she said, no, that's not what he wanted. But the son and daughter had a family pact that Ted Williams had signed saying he wanted to be frozen. And there were allegations that they just used one of his autographs and just wrote in the oh. pact on the autograph. Yeah. Uh, oh. But I'm not sure if that's true or not. But um, hmm. yeah. Wonder so what he died of. Oh, you know what? I, I read we'll that. look he, that up. We'll look he was up. old, like he was. He was alive for a long time, and he, he, you know, he supported Nixon, and he mm. loved Republicans, and and he actually supported Herbert H. Walker Bush, but I think he died of like a heart thing or something. Um, but he was old. He was like, yeah. He, he went out to the Fenway in nineteen nineties or something, and like threw, you know, waved his hat, and everybody loved it. Oh yeah, like, everybody but, loved him. Yeah, yeah. So that brings us to Thursday, January 10th, 1952. We're creeping up closer to Mary's birth. And and among so this this is on January 10th is the day that ship, the S S Flying Enterprise, sank. Flying Lowenda, yeah. Yes. Oh, it, sank. It, it actually sank. It <sighs> sank. Uh they finally gave up. They tried all these tugboats came and all these things came and they try to save it and they were trying to get it to go towards England instead of Cork. Um, but they should have went to Cork cause it was closer. They might've saved it, but there were a lot of bad decisions and a lot of people, uh, picked on this captain too, because a well, did they save him? And, yeah, he, he got off, but one guy oh. died drowned while they were trying to save him. But Carlson was the, uh, the captain who was reluctant to evacuate passengers and a crew to a British ship. So he wanted to wait for an American ship to go. So they criticized him about that, but hmm. the ship ended up going down among her cargo was 1,270 long tons of pig iron, 486 <sighs> long tons of coffee. It had some rags, peat moss, some Volkswagen, 12 Volkswagen cars, antiques, uh, <sighs> antique musical instruments, typewriters, oh, wow. Uh, 
naphthalene. Whatever uh, that is. Ten passengers, some kind of chemical. Um, and there's speculation that there was some gold and zirconium on it. Um, but on January 10th, Carlson and finally abandoned the ship at 1522 hours, and they were picked up by a ship called Turmoil, I guess. The Flying Enterprise sank at 1610 hours to whistle, siren, and foghorn salutes from the flotilla that had the flotilla that had been mm-hmm. all the boats around there. <laughs> so I guess oh they gosh. do like a whole like, thing, like a send off like kind a of salute thing. And it just a goes burial down and at just sea. Up. Yeah. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. Yep. Well, and Volkswagen um, cars at that time, those little cuties. Too bad they went. Yeah, really. Yeah. Pig iron, I don't know, but. So they were trying to get it to Falmouth, which is a town in England, Mm -hmm. which I looked up is the home of the band Zapoppin. There's a band called Zapoppin that's from there from 2017. God, who cares? But instead, but they should have went to Cork. (laughs) And Cork, Ireland, I did find out it's the home of Jack Gleason. Do you know who that is? Jackie Gleason? Not Jackie Gleason. A boxer. Irish guy. Jack Gleason, born in 1992. I don't know. You both would know him. He played Joffrey Baratheon oh. on Game of Thrones. <gasps> he just passed away. He did? He did? Yeah. That young kid? I Well, oh he's not goodness. so young anymore. Jeffy. No, what no, no. I have. He was born in 92. He's got to be pretty yeah, young. I'm wrong. I'm thinking of the guy oh. that was in Harry Potter movies that was um, the blonde nemesis. Oh, Draco Malfoy. Yeah. Oh, he died? He died. He did. Yeah. Oh. What did he God, die of? God bless him. You know, I don't know. I, I saw a picture and I didn't even recognize him at this age, but it, really? you know, the headlines were that that was him. Oh if I'm goodness. wrong, I'm sorry. Right. I'm glad you're alive if I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Wherever you are. We'll do an apology. We'll do an apology next time. Oh, corrections. Yes. Yes, corrections and apology. So they in the, in 1960, they salvaged $210,000 of the $800,000 worth of cargo. And they did some diving in 2001 and got some pictures of it and, and things like that. So Nikolai Bunjakowski was the guy who died. He drowned uh, when, during the rescue. Uh, so rest in peace, Nikolai Bunjakowski, which is possible, Mary, that you are Nikolai Bunjakowski reincarnated. Like he maybe entered your soul. Ooh. So I, I can't do a Russian accent, but, uh, you know, I'd love to no. hear it. I love to hear him talk. Maybe not. Yeah, aim, aim, can I you can't. Do? No, no, no even, can't go there. Ruskies, the Ruskies, and then okay, and then on January seventh, nineteen fifty-two. Oops, I went backwards. I did the tenth, but so Moses, whose brother was, you know, he moved his brother. The back to Moses, the um, his, bald mountain, Moses, or what was it? Yeah, bald. Yeah, bald. I can't remember, but he his brother was in a different nursing home now. They want him to go to a mental hospital. But Moses was contacted on January 7th on the Columbia set while filming a movie called He Cooked His Goose to help Jerome for what would be the last time. Help move Jerome. He had to move him one more time for what would be the last time he moved him before he dies. Oh, and then And then Sunday, January 13th, 1952. Mm -hmm. I I got a lot of disasters, so I hope you guys are ready for this. There's only one good thing this month, I know. It's, it's just, your birthday. just married. Yeah, I, yeah, I mean, there's, well, there it is. Yeah, there's, these are all awful things. January 13th, 1952, the streamlined transcontinental passenger train called City of San Francisco, mm-hmm. that's the name of the train, encountered a raging blizzard with 90 mile per hour wind gusts and snow drifts, 8 to 12 feet deep, that marooned the train high in the snow swept Sierra Nevada mountains of California. Yikes. This is all according to Tahotopia.com. Donner wow. Pass, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, really. So do you guys know where Lake Tahoe is? Mm, it's like. I've heard of it. <laughs> yeah. It's like it's like an hour, I think an hour northeast of Sacramento-ish. Somewhere oh, there. yeah. Okay. That's where this ship, that's where this train uh, got, stuck. Cr- got stuck. At okay. the start of 1952, this major blizzard engulfed Lake Tahoe and the Sierra, shutting down Interstate 40 for 30 days straight. Whoa. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, not only was that highway closed for a month, but a luxury train was stopped cold in the mountains with 226 passengers and crew on board. Oh, my God. What it happened was, to him? Again, this was major news uh, at the time. The, uh, the city of San Francisco was the pride. That's the name of the 
train. It was the pride of the Southern Pacific train fleet. At its inauguration on January 2nd, 1938, the state-of-the-art passenger train was deemed the world's most superlative train. Hmm. It had deluxe sleepers and coaches loaded with amenities. Just like the Titanic. Yeah, a lot of, yeah, people think oh, it's like yeah. the, the train of the Titanic, yeah. Uh, it was a technical marvel in engineering. It was proclaimed the largest, fastest, most beautiful, powerful, and luxurious steamliner ever designed. Unthinkable. Ooh, it was a $2 million train <laughs> in 1952. Yeah. yeah. Uh and it would go back and forth between Chicago and Oakland uh, in 40 hours. That's not bad yeah. for that time. It, for that exceeding hmm. 100, ex, At speeds exceeding 100 miles per hour. But on this day, January 13th, it rammed into a deep snow slide east of Yuba Gap. That's you know where Yuba Gap is? No. About 20 miles west of Donner Pass, whatever that is. But it's like oh. a, there's like a, a shell, like a cliff about it. It was, yeah, about north, an hour northeast of Sacramento. When engineers put the train into reverse to escape, the steel wheels slipped on the icy track. Nobody panicked. After all, the luxury train was more powerful and better equipped than any other train on the line. Among the 196 travelers on board were representatives bound for a Republican National Committee meeting in San Francisco and soldiers bound for the Korean War. No one really expected to be stopped by a near snow slide very long. But hours passed. However, and the passengers' laissez-faire attitude turned slowly to anger when they were still snowbound 24 hours later. Uh. The wind was fierce, howling at speeds in excess of 90 miles an hour, and snowdrifts towered 20 to 30 feet outside of the Holy cow. Good grief. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Many feared it would be just a matter of time before another avalanche would shove the entire train into the steep ravine next to the train. Midday uh. Monday, 30, 30 hours into the ordeal, no rescue in sight. The supply of diesel fuel ran out. Oh. When the power quit, the passengers oh were pitched into a cold, eerie darkness. Oh, what a nightmare. Time to get Even afraid, the, not uh, mad. Yeah, yeah, yeah get yeah. scared. And start, I, I, you know, I would start eating people at this point. Jeez. I would just start well. sizing people up. <laughs> you know, the, Might as well. Yep. Maybe checking out the goods. I don't know about actually <laughs> yeah. indulging yet. I would but, start uh... gnawing. I would start gnawing on the, the heaviest guy's arm. Uh, maybe start with his skin tags. I don't know. Ew. Why do you do it? Even as, so the, gross. as the blizzard rage, raged on, rescue trains were inching their way closer from both east and west toward the stranded stranded. Stranded Steamliner. Say that. There you go. Stranded Say that. Streamliner. One train carried dog sled teams. The Sixth Army. The Sixth Army trucked in weasels. What? Those are over snow track vehicles. They're oh. called weasels. Okay. And soldiers oh. trained in winter survival. Okay. Military doctors and nurses were rushed to likely rescue points near the stranded train. During a brief lull in the storm, a Coast Guard helicopter managed to drop medical supplies and food. Oh, which that's is good. good. So you don't have to eat the guy, the, the, yeah. the heavy guy. At one point, an avalanche <laughs> struck a rotary snowplow manned by engineer Roland Raymond of Sacramento, and he was killed. Oh, Another rescuer, oh. 36-year-old Jay Poor Gold, Roland. died of a heart attack from his exertions. Mm. Oh. Like I say, when you're exerting yeah. energy in the cold, cold. Is people die. Shoveling yeah. snow. Again, that's what happened to my really? stepdad. I think that's why my stepdad died yeah. when he did. Yeah. He was out messing with snow. So while they're stranded, right? They're stranded. Yeah. Because then, before they got saved, on January 14th, 1952, on Monday, the Today Show premiered with Dave Garraway and Jack Lescooley on NBC TV. Okay. I remember that show. Not the it's premiere, but... Yeah, the shit's still on. And this, uh, Bryant Gumbel was on there for a while. Anyway, and the, the snowstorm in in the Sierra Nevada killed 26 people altogether in other places, too. Okay. And then on January 16th, Wednesday. So this was Saturday that this they hit this. Yeah. Or Sunday that they hit this steep snow thing. And now by Wednesday, yeah. January 16th, mm-hmm. the storm finally stops. When the deadly storm broke on January 16th, relief parties rushed in for the rescue. The cold and weary passengers hobbled to safety along the tracks while the sick and weak were tobogganed or carried on stretchers. Miraculously, all 226 passengers and crew survived their three-day ordeal on the snowbound train. Hmm, that's good. It was a record blizzard. Nearly 13 feet of snow had blasted the region that week. Good grief. That storm dumped nearly 65 feet of snow on Donner Summit 
and the snowpack itself reached 26 feet deep. The greatest Yikes. depth ever recorded. There. Now, I wonder if that Donner Pass is named after the Donner Party. Oh, I, I think, you know? isn't it? I mean, isn't that the because isn't that where they isn't they, that where they make died it that far? Like yes. almost to California. I think they did. They got yeah, snowed in. They got snowed uh, in. And, yeah. yeah. Gosh, I bet it is. Yep. Yeah, gosh, totally. Google that. Let's just say it is. It's yeah, I think so. Well, it was the Donner Party, and you know, it happened there. Yeah. So I figure they named it after yeah. the Donner <laughs> That's Party. That's pretty safe bet. Yeah. Well, makes sense why then I was talking about wanting to eat people already. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it ties in. in my brain. tie in, Joe. Mm-hmm. Well, and that brought us to uh, Friday, the 18th of January, 1952. We're getting closer to Mary coming, but she's not Uh-oh. there yet. Uh-oh. <laughs> and um, 11, days, oh, 11 days after Moses was interrupted on that set, what? See, this is, I don't like the breaking so, the story up like this because I don't know what you're we're talking back about. To right, the... So Moses, the la- yeah. yeah, back on January 7th, Moses was contacted on that set while he's filming. And what was the movie called, again? Well, he cooked his goose. See, okay. that that's very prophetic, the name of that, and considering bet, yeah, his brother. And his, and... And his, and his brother's dying. Yeah. Uh, and so he, hel- he, helped, he helped move Jerome on January 7th. And 11 days later, on January 18th, 1952, Jerome Lester Horowitz died. He oh. lived the shortest life of the Stooges, dying at age 48. So he's one of the Stooges. Curly Howard. Jerome Lester Horowitz was Curly Howard. Moses was Mo Howard. Oh. What? He was what? Given a Jewish... What? Oh, I didn't Jerome know Lester that. Howard. It's, it's Curly Howard. That's his real name. Yeah. He was in a mental oh. institution? They wanted to put him in one, but he was out uh, of nursing home. Cause, so the thing had happened, he was only 48 when he died. He was given a Jewish funeral uh, yeah. and laid a, who cares? You guys don't care where he was laid to rest. But his he had started having strokes in the mid-40s. Oh, um, my gosh. Oh, and so you can sad. see, in the, actually, like, after they replaced him with Shemp, Mm-hmm. I, the thing was, he needed a rest, but these guys never yeah. rested. Like when they weren't filming, they were doing live shows like seven oh. days a week. They were just always on the run, always on the road. And the three students asked, they said, Hey, can we take a break? Curly's overworking himself. You know, mm-hmm. he was, he went to the doctor. They thought he had maybe had some strokes. Uh, his voice was getting deeper. He was getting slower. His energy began to wane. His doctor diagnosed him with hypertension. A, a retinal hemorrhage and of course obesity. Um, so he needed to take a break, but they're like, Nope, no breaks. Oh, so, th- so they had Shemp and they died like poor too. Yeah. They didn't have, they had horrible. It's awful. Deals, deals story. Oh. Yeah. yeah. And so Shemp had to come in and sign, you know, sign some deals, but Curly would visit the set sometimes that he was, he's got cameos in some of the ones Shemp is in. Oh, Just does like he? one, one, he's got full head of hair. It's kind of, Weird to see. Oh like, my gosh. Sleeping. Yeah. He's oh just my gosh. Guy, really. But yeah, I so thought, he, is he, Curly he, really related to Mo in real life? I mean, could they, they not really look are. much different? They looked, oh, but you know what? I looked at the episode, those, the movie towards the end when Curly started looking bad. They said he started looking bad towards the end. So I, I wanted to look, and he looked a lot like Mo because you know Mo's so old. Yeah. Look at Curly yeah. looks oh. just like Mo in the face towards the end because. He was having a hard time. So they think he had a bunch more strokes and then he started having hallucinations oh. and things in the nursing home. And, but yeah, so Mo Howard, Curly Howard and Shemp Howard are all brothers. Yeah, that's um, right. Right. Yeah. Right. So oh. yeah. Well, more sad, yeah, sad, sad death, sad, sad moment. We lost Ship sinking Curly blizzards, avalanches. The, the other thing about Curly Howard is they said he wasn't <laughs> anything. He wasn't anything like his character. Like he was real shy and, oh. re- and reserved and not crazy oh. and goofy. But he did have a little bit of a drinking problem. So that's when he would get. Yeah. Oh. And who doesn't? Who doesn't have a drinking problem hey. during this pandemic, right? That's right. <laughs> okay. Hmm. We're getting there. I think this is my last. Okay. January 19th, 1952. And this is where, Mary, you can help me with this one. But on okay. January 19th, 1952, the PGA approved allowing black participants for the first time in golf in professional golf that's Uh, good this was the day that joe lewis became the first black golfer to play a pga sponsored tourney uh and he was they weren't gonna let him so he took his fight to the press 
And so he beat the PGA rule that limited ter- tournament particip- participation to golfers of the Caucasian race. It was actually in their bylaws. That oh, my God. People of the Caucasian race could be in the tournaments. No um, non-whites yeah. is how they, yeah. Isn't that great? Ugh. Ugh. So I, I found this from the undefeated.com by Rahannon Walker. Um, she, oops. she can be found, I think, on Instagram at instant replay with rehannon i don't but anyway joe lewis you know he wasn't he just liked to golf he was a boxer Mm -hmm. he's a famous right yeah that's right um ex heavyweight champion of the world but he said i want people to know what the pga is he told the new york times on january 14th 1952 we've got another hitler to get by this is the last major sport in America in which Negroes are barred, Lewis told the L.A. Sentinel. Mm-hmm. It's about time that it's brought into the open, he told the L.A. Times. So he was just going to all the media outlets, talk, tell them about this. Um, and so there were two other black golfers, Bill Spiller and Ural, Ural Clark, um, that also couldn't play. And they still didn't let them play because they they couldn't be members of the organization. You had to be an official member to play in the tournament. Yeah. And you couldn't be a member because the bylaws say you have to be Caucasian. Joe Lewis got in uh, and they, they didn't want to at first, but his humiliation tactic worked and he became the first black golfer to golf because uh, they were sponsored by Chevrolet. This tournament was, and Chevrolet had invited uh, him to come. And so sponsors could invite, special players that weren't part of the, you know, members of the PGA. PGA. Oh. So that's why they let him in. And so the other golf, the other two guys, uh, golfers that I mentioned were kind of upset with Joe Lewis because they were like, you shouldn't play since they're not letting us play. But he felt like I need to break that barrier. And so they were kind of, you know, going back and forth about that for a little while. Okay. Um, but it did. He did. But he did not shut up about it. Like even once he did, he kept fighting about it until the other guys got to play. And I guess the next. The it was next like a tournament. week later, they were yeah, allowed in. Uh, yeah. yeah. So I he did, really. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. He really made See, some that's headway. What I, that's what I was confused about. If it was a week later or later, because then they said they didn't abolish that rule until nineteen. What did I say? I have it in here somewhere. Nineteen sixty-four, I think. Uh, 1961, the Caucasian-only rule was abolished, and oh. Pete Brown became the first African American to win a PGA event in 1964 at the Waco Turner Open. But yeah, so yeah, I guess they did. So I'm not sure how they got in the next one. If it was just like because people are asking now, because of the bad but, publicity, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Oh, what man, I read yeah. was uh, the Phoenix Open was the following week, and they did let all three of them in. Okay, that's good. So Lewis God, broke so... that color barrier for the I'm first almost time. Like, do you even even want to be in? You know, like ugh, I yeah, guess but you, do. you sh- but you should even if you don't want to. You got to change. You've got to be able it. to be. Yeah. Let... That's right. It's just yeah, nuts that not because of how you look or or something. Right. Yeah, for sure. Racism is so dumb. Yes. It's so stupid of a thing. Like it's so. Well, it's dumb. a social construct. It's not yeah. a real thing. Right. It's a social construct That's that, true. that was created to purposely keep the poor people, oppress poor. people. Yeah. Yeah. It's a power money issue. Yeah. It's and it, and it controls the other white people by making them think, Hey, if this person gets more power then yeah. I, that means I lose some of my power Yeah, and that's not how it works. Yeah. I just saw a meme recently that was like, it showed a picture of Donald Trump's one of his golden boats, yachts or something. It said, the guy who drives this convinced this, I'll show a redneck guy in a broken down truck, convinced this guy that these guys are taking all their money and it's it the a bunch immigrants. Of immigrants. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really that's, true. Yeah. That's, mm-hmm. that's about it. Okay. January 20th, 1952. Amy, Amy hates birthday. Stanley Burt Eisen was born January 20th, 1952 in Upper Manhattan, New York City. I knew it wasn't me. So. And Broadway. It wasn't yeah. you yet. Yeah. Just a couple days before you. 
So now you know Stanley Burt Eisen is just a little bit older than you. He was born near 211th and Broadway, the Inwood neighborhood near Inwood Hill Park. Both of his parents are Jewish. He's the second of two children. His older sister, Julie, was born two years earlier. Earlier, uh, Their mother came from a family that fled Nazi Germany to Amsterdam, Netherlands, and then to New York City. His father's parents were from Poland. Do you guys know who Stanley Burt Eisen is? I, I love Stanley Burt. I mean, there's a great name. No, I Stanley Burt's a great name, but he changed his name. So he was <gasps> raised Jewish, although he didn't consider his family very observant, did not celebrate his bar mitzvah. But his parents listened to classical music and light opera. Stan was greatly moved by Beethoven's works. His right ear was misshapen and from a birth defect called microtia. Until having reconstructive surgery at the age of 30, he was unable to hear on that side. He found it difficult to determine the direction of sound, and he couldn't understand speech in a noisy environment. Despite his hearing problem, he enjoyed listening to music, and he watched American Bandstand on television. His favorite musical artists included, included Eddie Cochran, Dion and the Belmonts, Jerry Lee Lewis, and Little Richard. Stan learned to sing harmony with his family, and he was given a child's guitar at age seven. Any guesses at who this is, Mary? Uh, you're, it, the suspense is killing me. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, that sounds sarcastic. Well, he listened to a doo-wop music, but when the Beatles and Rolling Stones played on U.S. television, he was inspired by the performance aspect, which he thought, that might not be out of my reach. He received his first real guitar at age 13. It was acoustic, even though he wanted it to be electric. And he played tunes by Bob Dylan, The Birds, The Love and Spoonful, and more. Although it was through, all through his childhood, Stanley has been recognized for his talent at graphic arts. So he attended the High School of Music and Art Give in New York City. Give her some clues that she's that are going to... You, you want me to just start guessing? Elvis? Um, I know. Stanley you know. was... <laughs> Stanley <laughs> was... 20 de- minutes on well, just Stanley was determined to be a star, man. He wanted okay. to be a star. Okay. He, he, he wanted to kiss his fans. Oh, uh, no. Really? On. Gene Simmons? No, Kiss. Stanley, Stanley, Burt Eisen. He's an American music singer and songwriter, best known for being the co-founder, frontman, rhythm guitarist, <laughs> and co-lead vocalist of a rock band. He's the co-writer of many of the band's most popular songs, Hit Parade, Ranked All right, 18th. it's Paul Stanley. Paul Stanley, God. you were close. You I are had another, dragging I, this out. I had another. We don't need any more. I don't know who man. Paul Stanley is. <laughs> <laughs> he's the other guy from Kiss. Dean Sim, he's what? the guy, he's Star Lord. He's Star. star I only star know Lord. the guy with the, you know, yeah. the tongue thing and all. Not a, oh, not that's a Gene man, Simmons. Sorry. You don't know Paul yeah, Stanley. He's Gene your Sim- age. Well, yeah, Gene Simmons, but. Shoot. No, I don't so know I, him. I don't know I him. Wrote, mm. Okay. All right. Is it my turn? It is. So that brings but us. But that to... was a build-up. Love the build-up to that. Sorry, Good I, Lord, I, was I, it all, ever? All my answers were wrong. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I'm going to talk about the murder of Dudley Veal. Ooh, Dudley Veal. Do you know this guy, Mary? No, no. He wasn't born this, that I year. Got, this was an excerpt from a book called "Murder Most Texan" by Barty Haley. Ooh. That's my oh. source. So there was a... Um, Wait, is this January 20... I'll get Ninth? to it. Yes. Because isn't your mom's birthday January 28th? Eighth? Yes. Yeah. So we got to play the birthday song. Happy birthday, Mary! Your birthday, yeah, 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 yeah. Happy birthday, Mom! So an East Texas feud boiled over into bloodshed on December 15th, 1951, when Hunter Bergman shot his sister's ex-husband to death on the main street of Corrigan. And we're in Texas. Bergman sat in his pickup on the main street of Corrigan, which is a small community of 1,400 in the piney woods of East Texas, waiting for Dudley Veal to come out of the bank. It was 10 days before Christmas, but the 55-year-old oil distributor hadn't driven to town to ask his former brother-in-law what he wanted to find under the tree in the the morning. Uh Uh-oh. Nope. Not not Christmas. Nope. He'd 
bought Veal's present early, and he was ready to give it to him then and there. Whoa! Uh oh. Presents sounds, like, sounds sexual. Yeah, it does. It did sound sexual. Kind of. Yeah. 43 year old <laughs> Dudley Veal. I know. Sorry. 43 year old Dudley Veal heard someone call his name and then he turns to see who it is. So he's like, yo, Dudley. Yep. And then, and so then his former brother in law fired once from a distance of 10 feet. Oh, no. And the bullet tore through Veal's chest, killing him instantly. Oh, oh really? Gosh. Now you said you said that like he was going to shoot again. It sounded like yeah. he was going to shoot again. Nope. So then he stops and he just kind of looks at him for a minute. And then he calmly goes across the street to Essie's Cafe because he's looking for um, a police officer. Now, I am just imagining in 1952, a cafe in Texas... I bet they have some delicious pecan pie, probably pies and 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 eggs and like they're just butter soaked in biscuits and everything. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Probably a the veal dish. Uh-huh. Yeah, maybe a veal. Yeah, Stan- <laughs> Stanley so he- veal. <laughs> Dudley veal. Yeah, Dudley. Dudley's- he okay. walks in. So he walks in and he and he what finds the police it? officer and he hands him the rifle, climbs back in his truck, and the police officer is like dumbfounded. Uh-oh. And so he climbs back in his truck, drives to Livingston, the Polk County seat, where he surrenders to the authorities there. Oh, just surrenders right away. Yeah. Okay. So the first thing he did after posting bail was to call his cousin, Douglas E. Bergman, oh. who was a former prosecutor for Big D District Attorney Will Wilson. And this might be where Doug E. Fresh got his name, the rapper. I doubt it. But we doubt it. <laughs> yes. Um, and because and District Attorney Will Wilson would leave his mark on Texas history as the state attorney general who shut down the gambling casinos, brothels, and other sources of illicit pleasure on Galveston. Oh, no wonder. You know, what What do you got against brothels? What I does know. anybody have against brothels? I know. Bergman hoped he could keep him out of jail. So he calls his cousin and says, please help me. In record time, Douglas recruited four of the finest defense attorneys in the eastern half of Texas, and in- including one named Zemi Foreman. Zemi Foreman, y'all! And he was brother to <laughs> famous Percy Foreman, who was another famous attorney. Percy Foreman? That sounds familiar. Did you talk about him before? I might have. Percy Foreman. That sounds familiar. George's so brother. He, he's getting yeah. this big defense together. Maybe. So as soon as the DA hears about that he's getting this big defense together, he needs to bring in more reinforcements on his side. Really? Okay. So two big city lawyers from Lufkin served well, I don't get as special why. prosecutors. He, the guy admitted to doing it. Why are they? Yeah. Why is, he turned himself in. Well, yeah. you'll, he, he will get to it. Oh, okay. And right. the stage was set for the most I dramatic courtroom confrontation Polk County had ever seen. I love dramatic courtroom confrontation. <laughs> 45 days later, on January 29th, 1952, which is where we are now. Oh, that is the same day that Faye... You forgot to look it up? No, I do, but... I, oh, you had the wrong document. I, my That's document fine. didn't save when I looked it up, so... The uh, sensational murder trial with its show. infamous cast of characters began in the same town 70 mile, 75 miles north of Houston. The Bergmans and the Veals, which were two prominent pioneer families... They sat there on opposite sides of the courtroom, didn't talk, didn't look at each other. The rest pioneer families. The rest of the 400 seats were occupied by these, you know, dignified old older women that came to watch, and they would bring their lunch in a bag so they didn't lose their place at the lunch recess. They just (laughs) didn't lose their lunch. (laughs) Yep. So the selection of the jury took nine days in the sparsely settled county of 16,000, it was hard to find qualified candidates, not on speaking terms with the accused or the victim. I guess. It's such a small, yeah. Yep, and who had not formed a hard and fast opinion about the case. When the 12th juror finally took his seat, only 20 members of the original 160-man pool were left. So they were having a hard time. Sheesh. Half of the jurors had something in common. Six worked for the same oil company under the same supervisor. Although several made the cut by insisting that they were not acquainted with their fellow employees, skeptics wondered how much truth there was to those disclaimers. So Zemi Foreman made it clear from the start that he would not dispute the most incriminating fact. There was no denying that his client took Dudley Veal's life. But... The attorney claimed Hunter Bergman committed the act in self-defense. 
and Zach Foreman intended to show the dead that the dead man had it coming. I think that's supposed really? to say Zemi Foreman. That was a tight, it was an autocorrect. So my guess would be just that he'd have to prove that Dudley was going to kill him. Yeah. In some way. So the prosecution opened right. with its star witness, high school student Gwendolyn Hudson, who Gwendolyn watched, Hudson. She watched the whole thing from the furniture <laughs> store where she worked part time. Really? Yep. So the teenager testified that she waved to Veal as he exited the bank next door. Then she saw the defendant walking across the street carrying a rifle. He was raising his gun, she recounted for the jury and the 400 spectators in the packed courtroom. Mr. Veal turned and started back, stared back. Just as he did, Mr. Bergman fired. The schoolgirl continued the narration, describing how the mortally wounded Veal collapsed on the sidewalk in front of the furniture store and was dragged inside by her manager. Five minutes later, the local mortician pronounced Veal dead. Responding to questions from the district attorney, Hudson said it with certainty that the victim made no threatening move whatsoever toward his attacker. She added that the only weapon found on Veal's body was a pocket knife with a four-inch blade. Not wanting to spend any more time on the open and shut case, the prosecution rested before lunch after calling just six witnesses. The defense countered with Elna Veal, who was Hunter Bergman's 44-year-old baby sister. Okay. Who told a long and tearful tale of marital woe. She swore that her abusive ex-husband had threatened her life and the life of her protective brother many, many times in the last 15 years. Oh. This is his defense. Yes. Hmm. A second former brother-in-law repeated another alleged death threat from the witness stand. During a visit to the Veal home a year before the murder, he testified, Dudley, while sitting in a chair toying with a pistol, announced, I'm going to kill that Hunter Bergman. (laughs) (sighs) That's what he says. (laughs) Then the, the jury heard from Bergman himself, who countered under oath that he fired the fatal shot because he believed Veal was reaching for a gun. He blamed his trigger happiness on a botched bushwhacking the previous day by his estranged in-law, but provided only a photo of a bullet hole in his pickup as proof of the ambush. A botched Hmm. bushwhacking. Yeah, I I tried to look that up. Bushwhacking is like hunting animals. Mm. So they must have gone out hunting together. And then he's saying that the guy put a shot at him. Okay. But he had one bullet hole in his truck. Okay. The, mom- the most dramatic moment of the 29-day trial, longest in Texas history up until that time. And the other guy, the other the, the other guy would kind of graze over here, and then I'll talk about it. The other guy just, he said on the stand that he's going to commit murder. <laughs> he's going to murder him. What? Never mind. Okay. The, um, I'll cut that out. I thought, I thought you said. No. No. Um, so uh, it came when Dudley Veal Jr. contradicted his mother on every important point. El Neville's grown son, who had taken over the family business, said that he never once saw his father physically abuse his mother, no. nor did he ever hear him threaten anyone with bodily harm. On cross-examination, one of his uncle's lawyers shouted, You got up on that stand and branded your mother a liar. She who gave birth to you and your sister. You should have more respect for her. So the politician presented the opening summation for the defense. Okay. His, his wild gestures and over-the-top oratory, which included dropping to his knees and praying for divine intervention. Oh, I bet that didn't happen. Yep. Oh, my gosh. Four hours into the six set aside, four hours into the six set aside by the judge for closing arguments, Zemi Foreman pulls a fast one. He suddenly turns to the tired jury and asks for a show of hands if they felt they had heard enough. And if they had, he would sit down and shut up. Wow. Can you do uh, that? All 12 of them, their hands went up and Foreman took a seat. So now the prosecutor's in a kind of a rock and a hard place because if he demanded his right to have the last word, he could relis- risk alienating the jury who just wants to go home. Right. Hmm. Uh, or he could let Demi Foreman have his way and hope that he made his case for cold-blooded murder up to this point. Hmm. So after a brief huddle with his co-counselors, District Attorney Simpson declared that the state would abide by the results of the unorthodox showing of hands. So they're really? going to stop. They're going to stop. So now. they receive their directions from the judge and they go to deliberate Hunter Bergman's fate. After the record-setting length of the trial and testimony from no fewer than 84 witnesses. Oh my gosh. No one <gasps> expected to see the 12 jurors anytime soon. Yeah. The jury was home in time for dinner after huh. deliberating only a half an hour. Wow. Oh, my good. gosh. 
the bailiff, whose nickname was Dynamite, <laughs> read the two-word verdict. I don't know why that's even part Dynamite. of it. <laughs> Not we guilty. We needed to know that, though, yeah. Not guilty. Not guilty. What? Oh, my gosh. As one side of the courtroom celebrated and the other wept, an elderly spectator had the last word. Well, she observed, it'll take a full generation and more Bergmans and Veals to heal this breach. <laughs> and that's Bergmans the story of the murder of Dudley Veal. Did they ever heal the breach? I don't think. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe they're You didn't do enough intermarried. Research. Can you find out? Intermarried. There you go. I'm... Nobody it's a cares. Romeo and Juliet thing that comes later. There yeah. wasn't a there wasn't a lot in true crime in January of 1952. It turns out. Yeah. Of course there for, wasn't. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, but <laughs> there's a chance that Dudley Veal. Yeah. Not only inspired the character Dudley on Different Strokes years later, but he also might be reincarnated as your mom. <laughs> and made Veal Parmesan. He invented yeah, Veal Parmesan. Yeah, that's true. Probably there. Do you a have? Do you have? Did you have any strong feelings, Mary, that that might be your story and that you might be somebody named Dudley? Dudley. Hmm. 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 No. <laughs> no. No. Tried that on. Didn't fit. Did not fit. No. Didn't, didn't work. Okay. Well, no. now we're going to turn it over to you, Mary, to tell us everything you know oh, about 1952. Oh, boy. Well, being that it's been such a kind of a joyous year up to now with all our related uh, fun <laughs> yeah, stories no and everything, let's go with the theme. We've kind of got started. Um, in trying to look at 1952, January 1952, um, and uh, tie it into today, there was something going on. And I remember it as a kid, um, you know, part of it anyway. But who's tired of talking about uh, pandemics and the like? Let's go back to that. We had a <laughs> raging epidemic going on um, mm -hmm. prior to that. So we're, you know, might as well get right back into it. Yeah. Never, never tired about talking about that stuff. You know, that's when you get your shot. Oh, I know. When you get your second yeah. shot, on and on. So anyway, mm -hmm. um, the polio epidemic for the United States had been going on. And oh, so right. that's kind of like, all right, well, let's see how this ties in. And it, it's kind of interesting stuff, really. Um, the polio epidemic was the most feared epidemic that we ever faced as a country. Uh, it was not the most deadly. The flu of 1918 was. Um, that lasted wow. one year, the flu of 1918. Wow. 50 million people died. <gasps> year oh my one, worldwide from that which yeah. is oh. rather astounding one in three people worldwide contracted that flu so that's oh kind of yeah but anyway is. polio the, i think the reason was because polio was a children's disease yeah that would freak for all out the for victims sure. they they usually were between six months and four years old so, Aww, yeah, that, that strikes terror right there. Um, let's see. It was uh, a viral disease. It affected the spinal cord and caused mm -hmm. muscle weakness and paralysis, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it entered the body through the mouth and uh, usually came from contamination uh, and contact with stool of an infected person. I don't want to go there, but that's uh, yeah. that's what the facts. Just the facts, ma'am. Um, yeah. And it was usually people uh, in poor communities because it was uh, poor hygiene, sanitation. So, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. My my, uh, my uncle Dick had polio. Did he? Yeah. My I mean, it wasn't my real uncle. It was my grandparents' neighbors growing up, but then they bought a house next to him. Uh, when they grew up later, but we called him Uncle Dick, Aunt Bonnie and Uncle Dick. He had polio. He had polio. Yeah, he he yeah. always when he was yeah. a kid. Yeah, he always had a limp. Uh, he's a funny guy. He loved margaritas. Oh, and he used a uh, rope for a belt. <laughs> so, <all right>. Sorry. <laughs> and he, hey, one you, other you thing about him. Right? <laughs> he, he he made he also made sandals. This has nothing to do with polio, I, I think. 
but he made sandals out of dress shoes. He just cut the toes off his dress shoes, <laughs> and and he would wear sandals with black socks. <laughs> those those shoes. I kind of love that. All look. summer, all summer with black socks and his his toes cut out of his dress shoes. Oh my god, <laughs> maybe his weird guy. shoes were too He's short a, or something, too small. Dick, I don't know, Dick Hostetter. Um, okay, so um, if you were exposed to polio and um, you contracted the virus, the symptoms took three to six days to to come on, and it was usually oh, flu-like. Wow. You felt like you were getting the really? flu. Um, wow. Seven to 21 days later, polio paralysis wow. would set in. So Ooh. it, yeah, it, it was really kind of a fast thing. So there's wow. kind of the facts of it out of the way. Um, the history goes like this. In 1894, the first polio epidemic started in Vermont. So it, it was early okay. on. There were 18 oh, wow. deaths. And remember, these are, these are kids. These are babies. 18 deaths oh, and 132 man. were permanently paralyzed. But they had no oh. idea what was doing it. Yeah, what they the didn't disease know what it was. was or anything. Um, in 1900, uh, Swedish timeline. That's okay. But, um, Swedish timeline. Swedish. No, that's okay. Um, but they they realized that it was an also an asymptomatic disease, which means you don't have to show symptoms to be a carrier of it. So that was yes. kind of oh, that's uh, scary. yeah a step forward. Yeah. Um, in 1908, it was verified that it wasn't a, a virus that caused it, and mm-hmm. they. They identified that it was a virus by filtering spinal fluid from dead victims. Gr- gross things for you, Amy. You love the gross stuff. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> thank you. But they couldn't. They couldn't verify it was a virus. They could only detect it because um, viewing actual viruses wasn't possible until 1950, when the electron microscope was developed. Oh, wow. yeah. So, are you fascinated yet? 1910. Oh, actually, yeah. Um, it was mm-hmm. the first time the idea came that maybe you could use the blood of polio survivors to yeah. um, make a vaccine that would uh, create antibodies to help oh, fight yeah. the virus. <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, in 1916, there was a New York City epidemic. 2,000 people died in New York City alone. 6,000 nationwide, tens of thousands were paralyzed. And again, these are kids. These are little kids for the most part. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Uh, Polio would come mostly in summer months. And of course, in the warmer months, you know, kids would be together in swimming pools and parks. And so it was Mm -hmm. kind of, uh, yeah, it it spread a lot then. Fickle matter friendly. Well, and sanitation in general. Was yeah. so behind yeah. then. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. 1921, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, a New York State Senator, was elected president of the United States. And FDR, he had. Con- yeah, FDR, you got it. He had contracted the poliovirus when he was in the Senate. And he was unable to walk when he campaigned and when he was elected. And he but always. Knew. Yeah, he he worked really hard to avoid being photographed in his wheelchair, and he would uh, always stand on crutches at the podium when he made speeches to create the illusion that he could walk. Yeah. Um, 1929, Boston's Children's Hospital, in response to the polio epidemic, developed the iron lung machine. Oh, my God, yeah. And that was described as a metal coffin like thing that you yep. got in and your head stuck out the end yep. and it's sealed airtight around your neck and the pressure uh, filled up and released inside of the uh, actual machine and that caused your lungs to inflate and decrease so you would breathe oh it gosh. breathed for you you know um, when I was a kid wow. I remember probably maybe four years old or something going to my grandmother's house and they had a neighbor whose son, I think he was, you know, teens or early twenties by then, mm-hmm. but he was in an iron lung in their living room. Oh my room. God. You saw I know. Oh my gosh. It was, in their uh, living like, room. Like Big Lebowski. Oh Just, yeah. Yeah. So that, Ugh. you know, that was freaky. 
Yeah, so that was uh, 29. They had that, so that did help. Um, in 31, they determined that there were different types of the virus, which is a concern, as we know, when things mutate or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And in, in 1934, uh, President Roosevelt started the annual birthday ball. They called it for his birthday, and the whole thing was to birthday raise. Birthday ball. Yeah. Hey, had one on January twenty eighth. Amy hates yeah. birthdays. No. <laughs> <laughs> they um, they raised uh, money for research for polio in that ball, and ironically, the biggest money maker was a yearly dance contest, which I kind of thought, you know, really, yeah, yeah. Mm. People want hey, to be able to walk for polio. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. or dance. dance. Um, yeah. In 1935, they they did have a vaccine and they tried vaccine trials and it was a disaster. Um, oh, no. Most of the test subjects died or were permanently paralyzed. So that was good. Yeah. Oh, man. Holy yeah. shit. Uh, mm-hmm. Can you imagine that now with all these anti-vaxxers? Yeah. They would be yeah. like, Thanks, I told you. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Wow. Uh, 1938, Roosevelt created the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis. And mm-hmm. a, uh, entertainer Eddie Cantor, I don't know if anybody remembers mm-hmm. him, that is going back, uh, yeah. while being interviewed on a radio show, said that he thought people should send dimes to President Roosevelt to fight polio. In a few weeks, 2680 80,000 dimes were mailed to oh my the White gosh. House. Whoa. And wow. it was the beginning of the March of Dimes. The March of Dimes, yeah. That's where March of Dimes came from. I wow. still remember uh, checkouts at stores would have those little uh, cardboard cards, cards and the dimes we yep. would stick the dimes in. Yeah. yeah. It raised tens of millions of dollars for research over the years. <clears throat> um, you ever try 19- to stick a, a dime bag in one of those? I don't think so. No. I don't think that can't a buy a dime bag with a dime either. Let me tell you. No. Um, <laughs> Doctor, uh, 1949. Dr. John Enders found a way to mass produce the actual polio virus, which was a huge boost in creating effective uh, research and vaccines to fight it. And he got the Nobel Prize for that, actually. Oh wow! Uh, okay. Then 1952. Hello. Yep was the worst year for the virus in America. Almost 60,000 new cases just in 1952. Wow. Um, After working years to find a cure, Dr. Jonas Salk, with the support of the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis, all those dimes paid off, started the human trials of a vaccine that used the dead polio virus. Mm-hmm. He announced on the radio that they had produced and tested an effective polio vaccine. The public announcement made him well-known, and his name is always associated with curing polio. Uh, He kind of was our first Dr. Fauci. Yeah, that's what I was going to equate him to Dr. Fauci. He got a lot of flack from the scientific community, though, for uh, being public, for his uh, public profile. Um, And they Mm. didn't the majority of the scientific community did not believe that a dead virus was an effective in a vaccine. So just oh. shows to go. Yeah. 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 Up to that point. Well, and by 1954, they were mm-hmm. uh, regularly vaccinating. It started the regular vaccination uh, of the Salk vaccine. Um, it took yeah. almost 50 years to develop oh that vaccine. We didn't even go 50 weeks to develop what we've had yeah. for the uh, coronavirus. Oh and I got to throw this in. In 1956, Elvis got his shot backstage before he performed on Ed Sullivan. Uh, Ooh, that's funny. So, and on a high so note. Yes, that yeah, is good. That's a good point. And I love, how that com- I, I love how that correlates with the coronavirus today. You know? How- well, yeah. I mean, I think the big takeaway is that our technology is way better so you can trust it. Like I think people are citing that like, Oh, yes. look what happened there. 
oh, I can't get a, my vaccine because that's what happened in 1952. It's like, it's 2021. Oh, right. We've got to figure yeah. it out. Get your second vaccine, everybody. There's all these people that aren't getting, I know, that aren't getting their second They're shot. They're not getting their second one. It's like, what Man are you doing, up. you knuckleheads? You already got yeah. one. Look at yeah, India. Know, uh, some, yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh my God. I know. I know. Get your freaking vaccines. We're lucky to be able to have them. Everybody yeah. get them. Oh, yeah. It drives me nuts. Um, yeah, it does. Well, it was shocking to me researching this that they didn't even, they didn't really know what was causing it. They didn't know it was a virus. Yeah. They didn't know it, how it was uh, contagious. They didn't know anything about it or anything about vaccines, really. So, came a long yeah, way a long like way it, up to today yeah it's such yeah. an odd thing like why would you think a, a airborne illness would paralyze you like i know i can't yeah. think of anything like that you know it's like yeah it's cold symptoms or flu symptoms you can't breathe or whatever but yeah and i'll never get the vision of you seeing that kid in an iron lung out of my head. Yeah. <gasps> You're the only person I've ever met that has seen somebody in iron it lung. It was really real scary. Life. Well, and we were just at the door. I, you know, we didn't go in oh, the room, yeah. but it was like, whoa. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my gosh. Oh, what guy. that kid? Oh, man. Wow. Yeah. Well, so we are lucky to be alive. We it's are. Our yes. Corona kind of, it, it, coronavirus kind of started out. Uh, doing that to lungs, it kind of paralyzed. Because remember, yeah. in the beginning, it was you—you know—you know, you can't yeah. breathe, you're suffocating, yeah. all of that. So, yeah. Yep. Yep. Hopefully, we're getting to the other side of this soon. I know. I hope so too. But thanks everyone for listening. Thank you, Mary. For yes, very thank you for that. Was good, oh, Mama. Was super good. Yeah. Yeah. I loved all that info. That was very, very good. It was I'm a little dry. Yeah. We need no a, idea. We need it's a happy song at the end or something. <laughs> I know. Polio is gone. <laughs> yeah. Polio is. Gone. Yeah, I never knew that. I I remember my dad always had a a weird yeah. thing on his arm from, yeah. the, from the polio vaccine, like the big like where he got. Oh, because it gives a scar or some some scar, sort, doesn't it? Big old scar. I think it was the early '90s when they finally declared it completely cured in America. Yeah, yeah. so like it, herd immunity you know, had been reached or whatever. Let's hope it is. Well, come and back. they yeah, the vaccine had gotten rid of it yeah to that point yeah yeah, yeah i never got anyway, the little uh, yeah. round scar but a you lot know. of people did from the shot yeah, my dad yeah. Said that. yeah. all right well all thanks right. for listening everybody we gotta Yay. get out of here it's yes. time to go mary was awesome here, that was really it's good been a thank you me so much love you guys yes yeah we love, love you, you. Too. Yes. thank you so much awesome. i apologize also i'd like to apologize for uh being a terrible son-in-law <laughs> well thank you i've been waiting for that and to our <laughs> listeners <laughs> to our listeners yeah. february is a much more upbeat month so so yes. hang in there tune in next time you'll love yes. it there'll be a lot of laughs yes. i wasn't born yeah, then do, but do that's in. okay <laughs> oh well well thanks for listening everybody it's time for chuck berry let's get out of here chuck berry chuck berry get out of the bathroom Blush first. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Mom. Thank you so much. Love you guys. Bye, everybody. Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. I haven't worn pants all day, no pants all day, no pants all day, no, 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 pantsy, pantsy. <laughs>